145 plea agreement happened. We're still waiting. It's late February. I'm at the courthouse in Rutland, waiting with a throng of other reporters for a hearing to start. It's for Jack Sawyer, the 18-year-old Vermonter who's accused of plotting to shoot up his former high school. The state prosecutor has charged Jack with four felonies, including attempted first-degree murder. If he's found guilty, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. Everybody stops chatting when Jack Sawyer is led into the courtroom. TV news crews are filming as he sits down with his lawyer, a public defender named Kelly Green. I'm plugged into the court's sound system along with the TV crews, so I can hear through my headphones what's being said into all the courtroom microphones, including the one at the defense attorney's table, where Kelly Green is talking softly with her client, asking how he's doing. Jack Sawyer is in handcuffs and chains. His face is pale. His eyes are hard to read. His long hair and drab prison wear make him seem kind of creepy. Green ruffles the hair back out of his eyes and, almost like a mother, gently scolds him for not getting a haircut. I'm struck just then by the realization that Jack Sawyer is 18, legally an adult, but I've got a daughter the same age. And to me, in that moment, he looks like a kid. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Jolted. is a five-part podcast about a school shooting that didn't happen, the line between thought and crime, and a Republican governor in a rural state who changed his mind about gun laws. I'm Nina Kak. And I'm Liam Elder Connors. For better or worse, Jack has become a public figure here in Vermont. But what we know about him is limited to a police report prosecutors used to charge him. We wanted to know what's not in that report. When you look at Jack, you go, oh, postcard family for a kid. You know, you'd go, oh, I wish my kid had that kind of life. Do you ever worry that you're being conned by Jack? Yes. Support for Jolted comes from the VPR Innovation Fund and from Primer, Piper, Eggleston, and Kramer, PC. They're a New England law firm that has served Vermonters and Vermont businesses since 1982. Learn more about them at primer.com. Part 2. How did we get here? We tried to reach out to Jack through family, his lawyers, and friends, but he didn't respond to our requests for an interview. Jack's father, David Sawyer, who's been a steady presence in the courtroom for his son, also did not respond to our interview request. But Jack's mother, Lynn, and stepfather, Dave Walk, are willing to speak to me. Jack's parents got divorced when Jack was 12. And two years ago, Lynn married Dave Walk. The two moved to Florida last year, so that's where I visit them. Their new house is everything a home in Vermont isn't. There's no mudroom, lots of ceiling fans, and the backyard looks out into palm trees. 
It's beautiful. Yeah. And I'll sit in front of you. I think sure. that'll work. It'll be like the interrogator. <laughs> the, the... Want to take your blood pressure? <laughs> if we sound kind of chatty, it's because I've interviewed Dave Walk a lot for VPR. He's one of the most prominent men in Rutland County. Take me back to that day, and I know it's a pain. But this interview is different. And as I sit across from Dave and Lynn to talk about Jack, as a parent, I can't imagine what this past year has been like for them. This situation has been 24-7 for you guys, and you're both nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. There's just so many moving parts um, in terms of the legal issues. And when we're physically not doing something, it's on our mind constantly. There's a lot the couple won't talk about because some of Jack's lesser charges are still pending. At this point, they're sealed in family court. Okay, let me let me think about this. Um, Our interview stops and starts a lot, and everyone's a little nervous. When Liam and I set out to do this episode, we knew we were walking a fine line. We didn't want to glorify Jack or sensationalize him. But Jack's story is important, too, because it spotlights some of the most difficult issues facing Vermonters and Americans today and the ways they overlap. There's mental health and teen isolation. There's gun violence and the legacy of Columbine. And there's the question of how to make laws that can both protect our lives and protect our liberty. I'm curious what you think about the the public's desire to understand where Jack came from. I mean, what do you think about me asking you these questions and people wanting to know this stuff. I can understand that, absolutely, that they would have an interest in that. In a case like this, in a story like this, um, there's a lot of fear. And uh, the only way to kind of conquer that fear is knowledge. The public is, is fearful and... They are looking for answers. They're looking for information. Um, And the Jack that they see is a Jack in handcuffs and and shackles on the front page of the paper or in the news. As Jack's mom, what's it been like for you to see your son in chains and going to court like that? Um... (laughs) It certainly um, has been hard, of course. Um, they don't see the, the other sides of Jack. He was the first person I actually had to sleep over with, which is funny, yeah. Super nerve-wracking when I was a little kid. To have my first sleepover, I was so nervous. But he was like, no, oh, it's cool, it's cool. That's Spencer Fowler. He remembers the first time he met his best friend, Jack. They were both in grade school. It was, oh, what is the day called? When the parents go into meet with the teachers, what is that called? Parent-teacher conference? Yes. No, no, no. Open house, I guess. So it was second grade and it was open house. I remember Jack had just gotten his dog, Sally, and he was going around and he was showing people some magic tricks that he had. We just started playing on the playground, and that was the day that we became friends. And then ever since then, we've been great friends. For the people who know Jack Sawyer best, or at least who thought they did, Jack's arrest, his journal, the one that lays out his detailed plan to murder his classmates and take his own life, they never saw it coming. 
I remember the first time that I saw the mugshots of him going into court, and I went, Jack, what are you doing wearing a camo shirt? I've never seen him wear a camo shirt before in my life. And he was growing out his hair too. So I'm like, wow, that makes him look even worse right now. So this is not what he looks like regularly. Like, everybody should know that. Spencer's mom, Stephanie Smith, says Jack was like another son at their house. He enjoyed travel. He enjoyed the adventure. Kind. Loved animals. Absolutely loved animals. Um, Just a nice kid. A nice kid. And here's the unsettling thing. When you hear about school shooters and wannabe school shooters, you want to think they came from someplace bad. Severe neglect, abuse, that there should be warning signs from day one. Maybe they tortured animals or something. But Stephanie says it just wasn't like that with Jack. When you talk to people who know Lynn, who know Dave Sawyer, their hearts are breaking for them because nobody saw this coming. Nobody said, oh, wait a minute. No, they're a dysfunctional family. That didn't happen because they weren't a dysfunctional family. They were a functional family, having their kids participate in tons of things, having a strong home life. Jack had a very nice childhood. So from the outside, the people who knew Jack growing up say, perfect family. But from the inside, things weren't so perfect. Um, so yeah, my grandma made this for me when I went to Europe a couple of years ago. Um, Allison Sawyer is one of Jack's two uh, older siblings. She shows me a photo album her grandmother made for. It's got snapshots of her and Jack through the years with captions like, my new baby brother, our new puppy, and happy times with an exclamation mark. This one looks like it's at Disneyland Yep, Disney World. Yep, uh, Disney World, exactly. Um, that was interesting and even then, like, his, uh, actually, yeah, his, like, anger came out then. Like, you could, um, uh, I remember my parents and older brother wanted to go on the Tower of Terror, and Jack and I did not, so we stayed with my grandparents. And I remember he, like, threw a huge fit um, that, like, you know, caused a scene, and I'm not sure if he hit my grandma, but could have probably once or twice. <laughs> I would have blown over this because meltdowns and Disney World just kind of go together. But Allison says even when Jack got older, like around 11 or 12, there was this anger. He'd lash out and hit her sometimes, hard. She says for the most part growing up, Jack was sweet and caring. But when your little brother gets charged with attempted murder, you start to wonder, what did I miss? Looking back, Allison says... It was in middle school that she first began to notice something else about Jack. Probably around his time in seventh or eighth grade, even probably sooner, like sixth grade, I remember just he was miserable, like when he would come home from school and not constantly miserable, but I could definitely tell like it wasn't just like school affecting him. Um, It seemed like there was a little bit more. That little bit more? Now Allison thinks it was mental illness. Since then, both Allison and Jack have been treated for severe anxiety and depression. Allison, who's 22, says she's doing better now. But she says anxiety has always made it hard for her to talk to others and connect. At the time, I didn't realize him wearing a hoodie, like, would be anxiety. I thought he just wanted to wear a hoodie. But now that I've 
grown up, I can see how that could completely be a safety blanket. Um, The hoodie, the hat. She says in his early teens, Jack always wore a hoodie or a hat, even around the house. It was something Allison says Jack and his dad fought about at the dinner table. And Jack had this weird posture, she says. He'd kind of hunch over and fold in on himself. And you think that was a sign of his anxiety? Yeah, I think so. Um, Or, you know, self-esteem issues related to anxiety. Allison says she can relate to Jack's anxiety and depression. But unlike her, Allison says Jack also had this anger with no outlet. Mental health advocates often bristle when people lump mental health into conversations about mass shooters. Experts point out that individuals with severe mental illness are much more likely to be victimized by violence than perpetrators. But when you talk to people about Jack, they bring up his mental illness over and over. And the Sawyers lived in a small town. Jack's sister Allison says that meant help was hard to find. Mental health was definitely, like, not a thing at Pontley. Um, Maybe it is now, but when I went there, it was like, that was never spoken about. Pultney Elementary School is in Pultney, Vermont, the town where Allison and Jack grew up. It's beautiful, but it's out there. Hunting and farming are big. So is wearing camouflage, which can show that you're part of the state's outdoor tradition. At prom in this part of Vermont, it's not uncommon to see couples wearing matching camo tuxedos and gowns. Allison says Pultney could be a tough place if you're not normal, or she calls it a normie. If you're any different, um, it's extremely hard. Um, I, you know, wore the more goth kid clothes and everyone else is wearing Abercrombie and Fitch or camo. Um, But yeah, I mean, if you're not like in the in crowd, basically, you're not a normie. And I don't know how you get in the in crowd, but um, we were, Jack and I were not. This might sound like typical middle school but it leads the Sawyers to send Jack to a larger high school, one town over, one with more kids and more options. So in ninth grade, Jack enters Fairhaven Union, a larger school, at least by Vermont standards. But high school turns out to be where Jack struggles more than ever. That's the bell at Fairhaven Union High School. About 400 students in 9th through 12th grade move from class to class. The school serves six nearby towns, mostly working-class communities. It's a pretty typical Vermont high school. Small, rural, mostly white kids. Here, too, there's a clear pecking order when it comes to popularity. Being good at sports or into hunting is a definite plus. Jack enrolls as a freshman in the fall of 2014. And classmates I spoke to describe him as funny, nice, a good guy. But they also say Jack was shy and kept to himself. Al Kearns was one of his classmates at Fairhaven Union. He wasn't very outgoing or very, uh, I think, noticeable. I know even just like in the lunchroom or anything like that, like he wasn't very talkative or anything like that. Al's description of Jack is not very noticeable strikes me. I wonder how I would have felt had someone described me that way in high school. Did Jack feel invisible? Was that why he started trying on different personas? As a way to say, hey, pay attention to me. 
See, Jack's sister tells me her brother went through different phases with clothes, that he liked to shock people. For a while in high school, she says he wore his pants down low with lots of jewelry. Yeah, he definitely wanted to be like a thug in a gang and um, kind of displayed that and wore gold chains. And he like wore a red bandana and um, like really got into it to the point where kids started bullying him because he's this small white dude from a small town. Um, and so I know they bullied him. Other students at Fairhaven Union tell me Jack was bullied as well. But no one I spoke to had seen it firsthand, including Elle Kearns, Jack's old classmate. In fact, Elle says by 10th grade, Jack was the one making other people uncomfortable. I heard one kid would, like, set a joke that was, you know, if anyone was going to shoot up the school, it would be Jack. And I think it was mostly because of the way he dressed and some of the things he posted on his Facebook page. So I think that... I wouldn't say he was bullied more than any other student, but I would also say that, you know, his high school career probably wasn't the perfect, you know, happy high school. You said somebody in at school kind of thought, you know, if there was going to be a shooter, it would be Jack. Why they say that? Um, because, well, you know, on his Facebook page, like, he had pictures of guns and pictures of him holding up money, and I think it was just kind of the the quiet, standoffish maybe attitude that he had um, made people even more wary of getting to know him. By 10th grade, even Jason Rasco, who was then assistant principal, is worried about Jack's isolation. He tries to have coffee with him a few times to check in. And I would I remember going into the lunchroom and talking to him about uh, different things and about getting involved and you know and you never want to see somebody sitting alone. Teachers notice Jack is more distant and less engaged in his schoolwork. Then Jack writes a research paper about the Columbine shooting and brings books about Columbine to school. I mean, it was I think some of his friends that came to us with the information. This is March 2016. At Fairhaven Union, school staff, counselors, and law enforcement meet to create a plan. They want to keep Jack safe and make sure he doesn't hurt anyone. And Jack's family is involved. Jason Rasco sets a date to meet with Jack to talk over their concerns. But the day they're supposed to meet, Jack runs away to California. The 16-year-old gets in his car and drives four days there and then four days back. And when he returns, he tells his mom... He can't go back to school. That's when Jack's family checks him into his first inpatient mental health facility. Over the next month or so, Jack will spend time in two others. His mom, Lynn, says he spends one night in a hospital hallway. There just isn't space for mental health patients. Uh, It's a very overwhelming experience to figure out A, what your child needs, B, where to go to find that, and C, how to put it all together. While everything around you is moving at a very high speed, um, and it's changing around you very quickly. Lynn is looking me in the eye through all of this. She's sitting up straight. Every step, she explains, has hurdles. 
especially in a small rural state like Vermont. For instance, Lynn says friends would recommend therapists in the area. But when she'd call, they weren't taking new patients. There's a shortage of psychiatrists here, especially ones who see kids. So Lynn says it was hard trying to figure out Jack's medications. In desperation, she starts to Google. So So what were you Googling? uh, You know, when we were looking for specialized treatment for Jack, um, we didn't know what we were looking for. And we knew what we needed. We knew what he needed. We knew what would appeal to him. But we knew that there was nothing like that um, in our area. And we just started Googling. This is surprising because Jack's stepdad, Dave Walk, is so well-connected. He was Vermont's secretary of education, a state senator, a principal, a school superintendent, and Castleton University president. If he can't find help here, who could? Full disclosure, Walk counseled my own daughter several years ago when she was trying to figure out what to do after high school. Lynn and Dave say it's on Google that they find a therapeutic boarding school that looks promising. But services at Ironwood, the school they choose in Maine, don't come cheap. A year there runs families more than $100,000. On the admission page of the Ironwood website, there's a big ad for a loan company called Prosper Loans. In Jack's treatment, we have spent over $200,000 of our own money. We have gone through savings. We have gone through education accounts. We have gone through it all. So... And, um, you know, we were fortunate because uh, Lynn and I had saved money. It was our savings for retirement. But what about the people who haven't saved money and who can't afford it? Before Jack is 17, he spent time in four different mental health care facilities. Ironwood, the school in Maine, seems to help. It's rustic with a big farmhouse and barn. There's no internet and no phones. Students follow a strict routine of therapy, classes, and chores. There are lots of animals to take care of, which Jack likes. And he even makes a friend. Okay. Rock and roll. So Probably front, front door. door. A girl named Angela McDevitt. Angela plays a pivotal role in Jack's fate and that of Fairhaven Union High School. She lives in a town not far from Poughkeepsie in New York State. So my colleague Liam and our editor Emily pay her a visit. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Are yeah. you Angela? Yes. Okay. Hi, I'm, I'm Liam. Hi, nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Angela McDevitt is 17. She leads us down to the basement of her parents' house, her territory. It's crowded with a foosball table, ping pong, and a big couch. She sinks into the corner of the couch crosses her legs, and wraps her arms around a pillow. I was sent away without my knowledge um, to Maine, which is where I met Jack at Ironwood. It was a treatment facility. Um, Everyone was there for various reasons, some being more intense than others. Angela says her parents took her to Ironwood in desperation. She says they were fighting a lot, and she was making bad decisions. It's while she's there that Angela got to know Jack. She describes him as quiet, someone who was left out by the other boys. She says he was really good with animals, but could be awkward with people. You never really knew if Jack liked you, now that I think about it. Like, 
he was always very nice, but like it definitely wasn't a surprise when he would say something like crazy, like like really like upsetting almost. Like I remember he would make comments like, Oh, I'm depressed anyway. Um but we kind of just like took that as personality, but he was always just very, very nice to us. Angela made a point to check in with him every day. I remember asking him, like, I'd be like, oh, like, how depressed are you today? Like, just to, like, whatever. And he'd be like, oh, not not too bad today. Or, like, actually, I'm doing pretty well. And, like, as I started to come, like, talking to him more, I think the responses to, like, that question got better. After Jack and Angela complete their programs, they stay in touch. Angela heads back to high school in upstate New York, and Jack enters community college in Maine. He also starts working part-time at Dunkin' Donuts and Home Depot. Jack's mom, Lynn, says he seems happier than he's been in a long time. At his graduation, it was the proudest day of my life with him, and he had done so much incredible work, and it was incredible to see him, and it was a really great program. But after Ironwood, things get rocky. His schedule isn't tightly controlled anymore. He has access to the Internet and social media, the pressures of college and work. It's around this time that Jack starts writing in a diary, that college-ruled notebook we've mentioned, which he titled The Journal of an Active Shooter. The first page begins, I'm getting tired. I don't know why I hate people with such sickening disgust for them. I don't know why people hate me and laugh about me behind my back. I don't know why I think so much. Every second of every day, millions of these thoughts run through my head. I want it to stop. Jack writes his name at the top of the first entry with a date. Jack Sawyer, October 23, 2017. By February, he's filled 31 pages. That month, the journal becomes public when it's entered into evidence. Did you read the journal? What went through your mind? I was so shocked. I thought to myself, who is this? Um, It just blew me away. I talked to Dave Walk, Jack's stepdad. Jack's mom won't talk about the journal. In the journal, he alternates between some pretty chilling rage and then some pretty gut-wrenching heartache Mm. about his family. What did you make of that? Well, one of the pages was from the diary um, a day or two after Thanksgiving, and we had a wonderful Thanksgiving with everybody home, and we had a great time. And and that particular entry talked about how, um, well, he sort of apologized to his family, uh, but that he couldn't help having these thoughts, and uh, that was pretty shocking. That entry Dave Walk is talking about is from November 28th, 2017. It starts out, Dear Mom, Dave, Dad, and Family, I'm so utterly sorry. He writes, I've been suffering badly, and I just can't deal with it any longer. Near the end of the page, he writes, Just know that I needed to do this. I love you all so much more than might be apparent. I'm sorry. Love, Jack. He signs his name with a smiley face. But the very next day, his tone changes when he talks about moving up the date of his planned shooting. It's detailed and specific. We decided not to include that material in this episode. There's also a shopping list of things he needs to buy, 
like a $50 tactical vest and a $13 rifle sling. Perhaps the most chilling entry comes on December 29th. Jack writes, I've been working on this craft of mine for as long as I can remember now. The biggest con I've ever done. Making things seem like they're all right, when in reality, they're not. And people believe me. He goes on, I'm just good at lying and making things seem okay. I asked Jack's stepdad, Dave, about it. Do you ever worry that you're being conned by Jack? Yes. Do you remember reading that passage? I do. Uh, I read all of it. So it gives you great pause in terms of uh, what you can trust. Like, I threw up halfway through the journal. Like, literally. Like, I'm not, like, people are like, oh, I got sick. Like, no, I threw up. I couldn't read through the journal the first time. Like, it made me really, really upset. This is Jack's friend, Angel McDevitt, again. Looking back, she thinks Jack could have gone through with it. I don't think that he was just someone making empty threats, if that makes sense, just because of everything they found about it. And also, like I said, like Jack, even like good things, like if Jack had his mindset to do something, he always did it. But if you rewind a bit before Jack's journal was public, before he even bought the shotgun, Angela McDevitt had no idea. She had no idea Jack wanted to shoot up his old high school. She had no idea he'd gone off his mental health medications, that he'd moved back to Vermont and was living out of his car, that he was eating only ramen and crackers, saving money for weapons. That's because Angela had fallen out of touch with Jack. She'd gotten into a fight with her parents, and they'd taken her iPhone away for several months. She didn't get it back until February of this year. He texted me, he's like, where the frick have you been? And there were also texts like that he had sent me throughout the months. Jack tells Angela he's dropped out of community college. And I was just like, wow, you had such a great future. And then, ever so casually, Jack says something startling. And that's when everything came up with like how he didn't really want a future anyway, because just a couple of days ago, he was planning to shoot up his old school. Just a few days ago, Jack tells Angela he was planning on shooting up his old high school. Angela's worried, but at first she doesn't know what to do. Then two days later, the school shooting in Parkland, Florida happens. Because I knew I was like, wow, this is an opportunity where I could bring up like the harm that one person causes. So that's why I didn't even think about like texting him that. Like I just texted him that like this happened. Jack hadn't heard about the shooting. When she tells him about it, he types back, quote, that's fantastic. 100% support it, end quote. I remember sit like staring at my phone, like just being like, oh my God, like, are you like, I was so in shock. Like, I was just like, you can't say that like people are dead. Like, and he just kind of started going off on a tangent about natural selection, about how we're all dumb and like how if someone is smart enough or like superior enough to hurt other people, then that's their fault because they're not like fit. Jack writes, it's getting rid of dumb people, quote, making it so only the ones who actually can get out and survive get put on top. It's just natural selection taken up a notch. And that's when I kind of was just like, I know I need to tell someone, like, immediately. (laughs) 
something holding me back was like Jack was is my friend like I didn't want to do this to him um but like then I was like how sick would I feel if I turned on the tv and found out that this school was shut up by Jack and I knew about it and didn't say anything On the next episode, the consequences of Angela's decision. Ultimately, I believed his intent, and I believed I had to act. So is it your position that no crime was committed here at all, and if the police had come up with all of this information, the proper response is to do nothing? In this country, typically we criminalize acts, not thoughts. Jolted is reported and produced by Liam Elder Connors and me, Nina Kack. Emily Corwin is our editor and project manager. Sarah Ashworth is our senior editor. Angela Evansy is VPR's managing editor for podcasts. And John Van Hoosen is VPR's chief content officer. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Additional music by Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Engineering support is from Chris Albertine, and we had digital support from Jonathan Butler, Noah Villamarine Cutter, and Meg Ballone.